the book of Jonah. I'm very, very excited to be walking through this book with you all over the next four weeks. Woo! Thanks, Sean. All right. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten, to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell upon Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for every portion of it. We thank you for the book of Jonah and the wonderful picture in this book that you have given us of your wonderful, outstanding, astounding mercy. God, I pray that as we hear from this book, you would enliven our hearts to love you, to love and treasure your mercy, and to trust in you alone for our salvation. God, would you make us a people who would be mighty to proclaim the mercy of your risen Son to a world that desperately needs him. It's for your name we pray. Amen. When we come to the book of Jonah, many of your minds are immediately going 
to some things that are just a little bit hard to believe about this book. Maybe you've heard something like this before. Maybe you've heard, there's absolutely no way that a fish could have swallowed a man. There's absolutely no way that a guy could survive in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. There's absolutely no way that an entire city would turn to God away from their world-renowned evil ways. The book of Jonah, let's be honest, is a little bit hard to believe. But friends, none of those things are the most difficult thing to believe about the book of Jonah. The most difficult thing to believe about the book of Jonah is that God could ever really be this kind. And friends, the book of Jonah is true. Every word of it is true. And that means that we really can trust our God to be this good and this merciful and this kind. You really can. If I were to give a title to the book of Jonah, I would call it God Sends Mercy, God Sends Messengers. God loves the world and wants the whole world to know the message of his astounding mercy. And so he sends messengers with the good news of his mercy to all the world. God sends mercy. God sends messengers. So we'll see in Jonah a picture of God's mercy, and we'll also see in Jonah a call for us to tell that message to a world that desperately needs it. Now, before we jump into the details of understanding this book, there's just some background information that I want you to know. In order to really understand the book of Jonah, we have to understand Jonah's worldview. We have to understand how Jonah saw the world, how the original readers of this book would have seen the world around them. And what we see, looking at this background information about the prophet Jonah, is that Jonah's entire life was shaped around God's grace to unworthy sinners. Jonah's entire life was shaped around a message of God's grace to unworthy sinners. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord in the time of the divided kingdom. And so if you know your Bible history well, then you know that Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was an absolute disaster. Every king that they had was an absolute epitome of wickedness. And that's where Jonah lived. And as you read the book of 2 Kings, especially in the Bible, you see this cycle of, of a king rising up and he's a failure. He doesn't fear the Lord. He doesn't trust the Lord. He leads the people into sin and idolatry. And as a result, God punishes the Israelites. God punishes the northern kingdom. God sends their enemies to conquer them. Over and over again, you see this cycle in the book of 2 Kings, that a wicked king rises up, God punishes Israel on behalf of that king's wickedness, and then another king is risen up. And that cycle repeats over and over and over again until the king Jeroboam II. And King Jeroboam II was actually one of the worst of all the kings. He was horrendous. He walked in all sorts of idolatries. He led Israel away from God's righteousness and into sin. And God didn't curse him. God blessed him. In fact, Israel had one of their most, 
one of their most profound times of plenty under the reign of this wicked king, Jeroboam II. And can you guess what prophet of the Lord foretold this wonderful, God, this wonderful outpouring of God's grace to King Jeroboam II? It was the prophet Jonah. Jonah would have been famous in the northern kingdom for proclaiming this good news, this message of God's grace to unworthy sinners like King Jeroboam II. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 14. So Jonah was a famous man. When, when, when the people of Israel would come to this book and hear this story about Jonah, they would know exactly what they were talking about. Their minds would have immediately gone to God's favor on them in spite of Jeroboam II's outrageous sin. Jonah was a prophet of God's grace to unworthy people. But also, Jonah's name is a picture of God's grace to unworthy people. The very first verse of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah is a Hebrew word that means dove. And the book of Jonah doesn't stand on its own in our Bibles. It was originally a part of a collection of books called the Book of the Twelve, or we call it the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets. Jonah was one of them. And these books are meant to be seen in one way as a bit of a collection. They, they, they illuminate one another. Reading one can help us understand the other. And Hosea is kind of the fountainhead of this book of the Twelve. It's the first of the minor prophets. And in Hosea 7.11, he says that Israel is like a dove, not because they're like beautiful and pure and white and graceful, but because they're silly and senseless and sinful. Doves fly around every which way, apparently. I don't know very much about birds. I read that. Uh, but doves, doves are silly and senseless. And if you watch a dove fly, it's like, what, is, what does he think he's doing? Where is he trying to go? Doves look ridiculous when they fly. They're silly. They're senseless. And God said in Hosea, this is like Israel. They're going every which way except towards me, except towards my ways, except towards the path of blessing. So Jonah's name is a picture of Israel's sinfulness. But he's not just Jonah. He's Jonah, the son of Amittai. And Amittai, another Hebrew word, and that means my faithfulness. So Jonah's name means the silly, sinful, senseless one who God is faithful to. That's what Jonah's name means. Jonah was a prophet of God's grace to unworthy people. Jonah's name is a picture of God's grace to unworthy people because no matter how unfaithful Jonah will be in this book, God is so much more faithful and kind and merciful. And Jonah's people was called to demonstrate God's grace to unworthy people. So this wasn't just a message that the prophets like Jonah were to proclaim. This was actually a reality that all of the people of Israel were to display. God's grace to unworthy people. Israel's call was to be a light to the nations. Israel's story began with a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God made some astounding promises to Abraham. And one of the promises in Genesis chapter 12 that God makes to Abraham, the father of Israel... God says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All the cultural groups will be blessed through you. So this was God's plan 
for his people Israel, that they would be a light to the nations. This is a crucial concept for understanding the book of Jonah, and we'll get more into it as we go throughout this book. Jonah was a prophet of God's grace to unworthy people. Jonah's name is a picture of God's grace to unworthy people. Jonah's people was called to demonstrate God's grace to unworthy people. And Jonah's God is characterized by his grace to sinful people. Exodus 34 was one of the most important passages in all of the Bible for the Israelites in Jonah's day. We read it earlier in our service. It's God's revelation of himself, his revealing of himself. Moses says, God, who are you? And God responds with this famous passage from Exodus 34. It was so deeply ingrained in Israel's mind that if you just said two words of it, a little Israelite boy or girl would be able to immediately rattle off the rest of it. This is who their God is. They would autocomplete Exodus 34, the same way that you would autocomplete if I said, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Good job. See how your brain just automatically filled that in? That's how an Israelite would have been with Exodus 34. It was baked into their hearts. And how does God reveal himself? God could say anything that he wanted about himself, and this is how he identifies himself in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So when God had the chance to identify himself, he spoke primarily and almost entirely of his grace and mercy to unworthy people. And don't miss it, God did promise judgment in that passage as well. But he leads with his grace to sinful people. That dominates most of this passage. Most of God's self-disclosure is a message of his grace to unworthy people. And if, you, if you're not really sure, well, did Jonah really have that on his mind as he was like doing all this stuff on the boat and in the fish and stuff? Yes, we know that because Jonah actually quotes from Exodus 34 in Jonah chapter 4. So stay tuned. We'll come to that in a few weeks. Jonah's entire life has been shaped by this news that God is merciful to sinful people. And that is what makes what happens next so unbearably shocking. Because what did Jonah do? Jonah heard a word from God. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. The city of Nineveh was renowned around the world for being absolutely wicked. There's another book in the book of the Twelve, in the Minor Prophets, about Nineveh. It's the book of Nahum. And Nahum actually describes the city of Nineveh and their crimes. In Nahum chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Woe to the city of blood, totally deceitful, full of plunder, never without prey. Is that how you would like your people? <coughs> Excuse me. Is that how you'd like your people to be described? As, as totally deceitful. Full of plunder, never without prey. They're always preying on the innocent. That's how the world viewed the people of Nineveh. 
a few verses down in Nahum 3.19. It describes how the whole world was unified around one thing, and it was their hatred of Nineveh. Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. There is no remedy for your injury. Your wound is severe. So God proclaiming that he will judge Nineveh. And all who hear the news about you, the news about your judgment, the news about your fall, will clap their hands because of you. For who has not experienced your constant cruelty? It reminds me of a few months ago when Russia invaded Ukraine and the entire Western world agreed about something for once. Like everyone agreed that Russia was completely off base and needed to be, we, we needed to do everything we could to support the Ukrainian people and to help them. That's how Nineveh was. Everybody thought they were completely off base. These wicked people preying on the innocent. They're a horrendous people. And, and so what does God say? God says, go to Nineveh because their evil has come up before me. That phrase, their evil has come up before me, happens over and over again in the Old Testament. And it's not a picture of God learning about something like, oh man, I didn't realize they were being really nasty over there. God knows everything. It's not a picture of God learning new information. It's a picture about some information being particularly odious to God, particularly stinky to God. God's saying like, P.U., we got to take care of this. We're done with this. He's acknowledging their crimes. And so what does Jonah do? In verse 2, God says, arise, go to Nineveh. What does Jonah do? But Jonah rose. Well, that's good. That's what God said to do. Arise. Jonah rose. Oh. To flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Three times in this little section, it's repeated, he went, where? To Tarshish. No, man, come on, that's not where God told you to go. They're, the foolishness of Jonah is just being emphasized here about how disobedient and crazy he's being. God said, arise and go to Nineveh, and Jonah arose and went to Tarshish. Tarshish? Tarshish! Three times it's repeated. The, the city of Tarshish would have been famous in Israel as well because this is where King Solomon got his gold from. So God blessed Solomon with great wisdom, and Solomon broke one of the only rules that was given to a king in Israel, which was not to amass gold for himself. Solomon broke that rule, and where did he break it? He broke it in Tarshish. And so just even the city of Tarshish would have been a picture of, of silliness and foolishness and sinfulness to God's people. It's also interesting that in verse 3, he went down to Tarshish. He went down into the boat. That doesn't make any sense geographically. Tarshish was west of Israel, not south of Israel. And so this is actually a picture of Jonah descending further and further into the realm of the dead. You see, death images come up all over the book of Jonah. We're going to get really into that next week. 
Jonah sings a song about how he almost died, praising God's deliverance. We'll get into that next week. Spoiler alert, I guess, if you don't know what happens to Jonah. So, And, and it's also a, a, a contrast with God's command. God told him to rise, and Jonah went down, down, down. And you'll see throughout the rest of this passage, he keeps going down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the sea. And he says that he's going to Tarshish to get away from the presence of the Lord. A completely foolish errand to do. This was a theme throughout Israel's songs and poetry that you could never escape from the presence of of the Lord and how that's really good news because God's kind to you and merciful to you. Why would you want to escape from him? You could never get outside the realm of his grace and mercy or his punishment. And so that's what Jonah's trying to do. He's not just trying to get away from Nineveh. He's trying to get away from the Lord. And what happens? How's that work out for you, Jonah? Verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. This is fun. Look for the repetition of the word hurl in Jonah chapter 1. It happens again and again and again. Everybody is hurling something. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. Mariner means sailor. They were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So you see the picture here. Jonah running from the will of God. God says, arise. Jonah goes down. But then God hurls, and the sailors also hurl. Well, that's interesting. We're going to get more detail on that. But what you see is this contrast starting to form between Jonah and the sailors. But Jonah had gone down into the innermost part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. Down, 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 away from the presence of the Lord. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now note that these sailors' first instinct was spiritual. Their, their first thought was not what can I do to save myself? Their first instinct was, this is a big mess. We need somebody really big to save us. We need to call out to the gods. These are spiritual sailors, but they're also pagan sailors. And that's important to see. Because what we will see is that while Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, who knew God's word backwards and forwards continues to disobey, while the sailors who know absolutely nothing about God come closer and closer and closer to doing his will and to worshiping him in truth. Verse 7, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So casting lots, it was like rolling a die or flipping a coin. It was a way to make a choice in the ancient world. Some cultures use it as a form of divination to speak to the spiritual world. And the Bible is very clear that God's in control of all things, including in Proverbs chapter 18, God's in control of the casting of the lots. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah, Jonah, what Jonah's doing there is acknowledging the power of the creator God. He's saying God who made this sea is raising this sea up to destroy me. He made the sea and the dry land. This God is powerful to crush his enemies with the waters of judgment. In verse 10, the sailors respond. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. You see the action just starting to pick up. There's a lot of tension rising. There's a lot of energy in the story. We don't know what's going to happen. The storm is rising. Is everyone going to die? The sea grew more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them in verse 12, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. There's more hurling. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The word hurl is really funny. Why is it repeated so many times? Not just because the author of Jonah thought it was a funny word, but because he, he's showing that God started this purpose of hurling and God is going to finish his purpose of hurling. Everything that God plans, he does accomplish. And so what does Jonah say? He says, throw me into the sea. Jonah's, Jonah's motives are very, very muddled and unclear throughout this entire book. You're meant, I think, to read this story and be like, huh? Like, what? Why? Is he, like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Like, I don't know. Like, this isn't like a children's book where it's like very clear, like, he's the good guy and he's the bad guy. It's this very unclear, complex picture of Jonah. It's an unclear and complex picture of humanity. And I, I think that what's happening here is not a noble act of self-sacrifice, of saying like, kill me, save yourselves. I think what's happening is Jonah is actually continuing to flee. He's saying, well, the boat didn't work to hide me from the Lord. Maybe the sea will. Maybe I could go down yet again, and maybe that would save me from the Lord. And yet, it still is a picture of a prophet like Moses Dying to save the nations. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. So compare that. Compare that to verse 6. In verse 6, the sailors are crying out to all sorts of gods, all sorts of random spiritual idols and deities. But here in verse 14, they call it to who? To the Lord. When you see the Lord, word Lord written in all capital letters in your Bible, that's referring to the Lord's covenant name, the name that he revealed to his people to say, I'm yours. This is my special name that you can call me to show that we're one, that we're in the same family, that you're my people. And now here you see in verse 14 a picture of the nations turning away from their idols to call upon the true Lord and to even come so close and to dare to identify him by his covenant name. It's crazy. 
And what do they say? They call out to the Lord, and what do they say? Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us his innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. It seems like a good prayer, right? They're just saying, like, hey, we're going to kill this guy. I hope that's okay. Like, but, but their words have a lot of meaning. They're actually quoting from Psalm 135. What is Psalm 135 about? It's about, it's, it's about the greatness of the true God, specifically compared to the silliness of idols. So in these sailors praying Psalm 135, it's a picture of them turning away from the emptiness and the foolishness of their idols and turning towards the true God. They cry out not to their gods anymore. They cry out to the Lord. Psalm 135 says, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. It's very similar to Jonah's words, also from verse 9, isn't it? That the Lord, the God of heaven, made the sea and the dry land. And here you see a picture of God doing, the Lord doing whatever he pleases. He always accomplishes his purpose. And so the picture in Psalm 135 is that idols cannot save you. The true God can. And the picture here in Jonah chapter 1 is the nations turning from their idols to worship the true and living God. And then what happens? Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. God saves his people, the nations, his people, that's crazy. God saves this people, and they turn, they worship him, they make vows to him, they, they pledge their allegiance to him. So you see this absolutely insane picture of an Israelite who knows God's will and flees. The sailors who just see this picture of God and they turn to him. The Israelite flees from God. The nations worship God. There's a number of absolutely stunning reversals that take place in the book of Jonah. Things that would absolutely boggle the mind of an Israelite. They would hear about these pagan sailors turning. And be like, that, 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 that's not how it's supposed to happen. That's nasty. Get those people away from me. It's a reversal. And it reminds us of Israel's call to be a light to the nations. And that's so important for the book of Jonah because Jonah is not just a morality tale about a prophet who messed up. The book of Jonah is actually a work of satire. It's a condemnation on the, on the entire nation of Israel. Because just like Jonah, they had forsaken their call to be a light to the nations. Verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You notice here, even the fish does the will of God. Even the fish does the will of God. Jonah couldn't do that, but the fish did it. Jonah's entire life was shaped by a message of God's grace to unworthy sinners. 
And when Jonah gets this opportunity to bring a message of God's mercy and judgment to the nations, he flees. Friends, I hope you're realizing that there are no heroes in the book of Jonah apart from the Lord. Yes, the book bears his name, but Jonah is not the hero. He fled from the Lord. Sure, the sailors turned to God, but they were also a big, hot mess. Not to mention they did throw a guy into the ocean in the middle of a really bad storm. It's like Rose on the boat in Titanic. Just, there's space. Let him on. Uh, so the sailors can't be the hero. Like, okay, maybe the fish is the hero. He does the will of God. Well, he ate a guy. Like, that's no fun. Maybe the Ninevites will be the hero. Like, did you hear from Nahum chapter 3? They can't be the hero. They're a mess. They're a disaster. There's no heroes in the book of Jonah except for the Lord. The Lord is the hero of the book of Jonah. And friends, he is absolutely, stunningly, greater than you could ever imagine, merciful. He is kind. He takes these messed up people like Jonah and he shows them grace and he shows them mercy. And God's mercy is seen most supremely in his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lived a perfect life. He was the perfect Israelite, the only one who consistently was a light to the nations. He called the Greeks and, and, and the, the Sidonians to himself. Wherever Jesus went, he called people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus was a light to the nations. Jesus arose and proclaimed the word of God, even to sinful people like Nineveh. Jesus alone has perfectly done the will of God. And Jesus died, not by fish, but by cross. And not for his crimes, because unlike us and unlike Jonah, he had none, but for our crimes. Christ was punished for our wrongdoing. But then he conquered death. He rose from the dead. I told you in Jonah, there's this picture of going down, down, down. Jesus too went down and then he arose. He went down into the waters of death and he was raised up. And he will never die again, friends, so you can fully rely on him. Friends, do you see how wonderfully merciful God is? And you even see it here in Jonah. We'll get into this more next week. But God is merciful to Jonah. Because even in the moment of absolute rebellion, God raises up a savior, a fish, to swallow him and save him from the deep. It's astounding. God is incredibly merciful. Jonah knew that. Jonah had seen that. Israel knew that. Israel had seen that. They knew their call to be a light to the nations. They knew the wonder of God's grace and mercy. And yet... They completely missed their call to be a light to the nations. And so my question for you today is, have you missed your call? Have we missed our call? What are we to do in light of Jonah, of seeing his foolishness and seeing it didn't really work out well for him? If we refuse to proclaim God's message of mercy to non-Christians around us, we're just like Jonah. Friends, this is God's purpose for you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter describes God's wonderful choice of you, 
chose to save you. He showed mercy to you. And why? 1 Peter 2, 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why did God save you? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, God has shown you mercy so that you can proclaim his mercy. And this is not, we do not do evangelism. We do not proclaim the name of Jesus to earn God's mercy. We do it because we've been shown mercy. God sends mercy. God sends messengers. God sends mercy. God sends messengers. What I want you to see, friends, more than anything, is that God has shown his mercy to you. There's nothing you could do to earn it. So come to Christ and be saved. And what I want you to see is that in light of that mercy, the only way we could ever respond is by sharing this good news with a lost world around us. I wanted to share something with you. I've been thinking about this a lot. I need two hands. There we go. What would happen if if we don't do this, if we're like Jonah, if we run from God's call. There's 60 members of Pillar Church of Washington, D.C. What do you think will happen if, if in the rest of this year, zero members of Pillar Church of Washington, D.C. share the gospel zero times, and from those zero gospel conversations, we follow up and we study the Bible and let's say that maybe 50% of the people we share the gospel with will agree to read the Bible with us. That would lead to zero people involved in, zero non-believers reading the Bible with members of Pillar Church of Washington, D.C. And let's just say, just for the sake of an argument, if, if 25% of these people came to know the Lord and we got to baptize them here, that would be uh, zero new believers in our church. None of us want this. None of us want this. I know all of you. I know that you're merciful and you love people and you want to see people come to know God because you love him. I know that about you, friends. None of us want this. I call this the Jonah plan for church growth. It's not going to work out well for you. Maybe God would eat us with a fish. And friends, if this is what we choose, we would deserve to be eaten by a fish. We would deserve for the ground to open up and swallow this building because if this is what we're going to do, if we're not going to share the gospel with a world that needs him, we deserve to be eaten by a fish. We don't deserve this building. We don't deserve to be a church. It's complete foolishness, friends. But what, what could happen? Just think about it. What could realistically happen this year if we take seriously God's call? There's 60 members of Pillar Church of Washington, D.C. What if sometime in the rest of this year, every single one of us shared the gospel at least one time with a non-Christian that we know, somebody in our, in our friend group or somebody that we work with or somebody in our neighborhood. And what if 50% of the people that we share the gospel with agree to study the Bible with us? Because Romans chapter 10, 10 says that faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. People will not become Christians because we're very persuasive. And some of you are saying, oh, well, I already know I'm not going to be that one of the 60, so I better just knock it down to 59. No, no, friends. People will not become a Christian because of your persuasiveness. People will become a Christian because God's word does its work. 
And so we don't want you to just go out and try to persuade people and win arguments. We want you to open God's word with someone. This is not the entire conversation. This is just how you start the conversation. So let's just say that we all had one gospel conversation in the rest of this year, and 50% of those people agreed to read the Bible with us. That would mean 30 non-Christians hearing the word of God, 30 non-Christians hearing the word that gives life, 30 non-Christians coming face to face with the reality of the risen Christ on the pages of Scripture, seeing the message of God's grace, not from your lips, but from God's Word. Isn't that astounding? And let's just say, for the sake of argument, that 25% of those people came to know the Lord. A little conservative, if you ask me. That would be seven new believers. Seven people that we would get to baptize just because we all shared the gospel one time. What would happen if we changed this number to 120, if we all shared the gospel with two friends that we know? That would be 14 people baptized. Friends, that would be amazing. Don't you want to see that happen in our city? Don't you want to see that happen in our church? I want to see you up there baptizing somebody that you led to the Lord. I want to see that happen this year. And friends, this is God's grace to you. We read earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We have this ministry, this ministry of proclamation by the mercy of God. God is inviting you into this. God wants you to be a part of this. And now, I want to be clear. I cannot guarantee to you that if we all go share the gospel one time with a friend this week, we'll baptize seven people by the end of this year. I cannot guarantee you that because God's the one that saves people, not us. And he's going to save whoever he wants to. But I can guarantee to you that if we sow zero seeds, we will reap zero fruit. How can we expect to reap a harvest? If you don't want the Jonah plan, then don't be like Jonah. Don't settle for the Jonah plan. Strive to follow God's plan. So my question to you is, who's your one person that you can share the gospel with this year? We prayed earlier in the service for Pillar Church of San Diego. Pillar Church of San Diego is just baptizing a whole mess of people out there. And I had the opportunity last month to meet Daniel Carter, who's one of the pastors of Pillar Church of San Diego. And I asked him, Daniel, like, what are you guys doing? How are you guys baptizing all these people out in California? Nobody believes in God in California, right? How are you, like, what are you doing? How did this happen? How did this come about? And Daniel was, like, confused by even asking the question. He was like, well... We baptized one person who I know from my softball team. Well, actually, a couple people from softball. And then, like, one person's my neighbor. It's just, they're, they're just not doing anything fancy. They're not having these incredible events or earth-shattering services. They're just going out and being faithful. They're sharing the gospel with people that they know. Do you have friends? Do you have coworkers? Do you have neighbors that don't know the Lord? Friends, God has chosen you that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So who's your one? Who's the one person that you will share the gospel with and pursue, really pursue, ask him to read the Bible with you? Who's the one person that comes to your mind right now? A non-believer, somebody you know here in the city or where you live, who you can share with. Who's one non-believer you know who you can ask to study the Bible with you? And if you ask a non-believer to study the Bible with you, you will be surprised by three things. First, you will be surprised at how well-equipped you are to do it. Number two, you will be surprised at how willing they are to study the Bible with you. Like, you might think, like, I'm not going to ask a coworker to read the Bible with me. They're going to think I'm weird. 
Friends, you will be surprised, I promise you. No one will like bring you to be burned at the stake just because you asked them to read the Bible with you. People will generally be willing to do that. And you'll also be surprised at how much fruit is born. God will bear fruit when his word is proclaimed. But we don't just want to talk about this. I don't just want to get say stand up here and say, like, go do it, guys. Go and share the gospel with people and study the Bible with people. I want to help you. I want to help you. And so I've worked along with some other guys in the church, some other people in the church, to put together a resource. It's called Know Jesus, and it's a Bible study that walks through 15 passages in the Gospel of Mark. And it's designed for you, a Christian, to use with a non-Christian. So you say, I don't know how to study the Bible with a non-believer. Take this. This will tell you everything you need to say. We worked really hard to make this as useful of a resource as possible because we don't want the Jonah plan. We don't want to settle for that. We want to see people come to know the Lord. We want to see our church grow, not by just a bunch of Christians coming from other churches. We want to see our church grow as believers enter the kingdom of God. And so we put together this resource. And people around the world have actually donated so that this resource could be free to you. So this resource has been free for us to print so that you can take two copies today. One for you and one for a non-Christian friend or family member or, or coworker or neighbor that you can share with. So we want you to take two copies of this today. I don't want you to take two copies if you're going to just like throw them in the backseat of your car and let them get all crumpled up because people did donate sacrificially so that you could have this so that the gospel would be proclaimed in Washington, D.C. But I want you to really prayerfully consider who's the one person that I can ask to study the Bible with me? And when will I ask them this week to study the Bible? You're like, well, that's awkward. Like just to jump right into it, hey, will you read the Bible with me? No, it's not awkward. Here's exactly how you start the conversation. You say, hey, insert name here, I was praying for you this weekend. Would you ever be interested in reading the Bible with me? It's like, wow, you were praying for me? That's, that's pretty cool. Like, that's really kind of you. Uh, sure, I'll study the Bible with you. And boom, now you, you might have had the excuse like, oh, I don't know how to start the conversation. Took care of that one too. I was praying for you this weekend. Would you want to study the Bible with me sometime? Because we have these books. And so I want you to seriously consider who's your one, who's the one person that you will ask to read the Bible with you today, this week. When this week will you ask them? And then the third thing I want you to do is pray for God's help, to pray that God would help you. Because you're not persuasive enough, you're not powerful enough to see people come to know the Lord. If it's up to us, unless the Lord builds the house, we might as well just settle for the Jonah plan. But God is powerful, and he longs to see his name proclaimed among the nations. So friends, let's not settle. Let's tell the world. Let's open God's word for people. And friends, some of you are like, man, I hope somebody does that Bible study with me. Some of you might be realizing that you've never experienced God's mercy in Christ. Friends, if that's you today, I want you to know that you are guilty like Jonah. You're just as much of a mess as Jonah and the sailors and Nineveh and even the fish were. But God has so much mercy. You don't have to flee from him because he calls you close. 
by his grace. And friends, Christians in this room, we have this ministry by the mercy of God to proclaim his word to non-Christians in our city. So will you do it? Will you take up the mantle? Don't flee from him like Jonah, friends, because you don't have to. I'm not saying don't flee from him because then our church will die. I'm saying don't flee from him because you don't have to. His grace is available to you. So I want you to very prayerfully consider who you will share this resource with, who you will walk through this resource with. It's just 15 sessions through the Gospel of Mark. It gives you, gives you some questions and exercises to do. It tells you literally everything that you need to say. So there's absolutely no, nothing that should hold you back. Some people in our church have taken copies already, and they're already using it with non-believers and seeing fruit, seeing people challenged, seeing people be like, that's what God is like? That's what Jesus is like? So let's do it, friends. Let's do it, friends.